Hello and welcome to Never Press News, the podcast which will give you an insight into the lives and minds of the most motivated and inspirational people I have the pleasure of knowing. I'm Tony Musgrave and this is Never Press News. Hello, welcome to Never Press News, Season 3, Episode 6. So this is the first one back after a couple of weeks mid-season break and I've got an absolutely amazing guest for you today. Firstly, I just want to say thank everybody that has listened and loaded to any of the previous podcasts in Season 1 and 2, but more importantly in Season 3, first five episodes been really, really positive feedback for them as well. So keep listening, keep downloading. You can find it on Spotify uh, and any other podcast providers. You can find us, us on Instagram, MPS216, Facebook, LinkedIn, you name it, it's out there. But that's enough about me and the podcast. I want to introduce a former sergeant in the British Army who uh, served with the Grenadier Guards, operational tours in Bosnia, Iraq, Afghanistan. This guy is a bodybuilding champion. He's a world record holder, Britain's strongest man, competed for world's strongest man. Not only is he all of that, he's a professional footballer and an author. Welcome to the podcast, Mark Smith. Hiya, mate. That's, uh, I appreciate the introduction there. Thank you. No problem, mate. Uh, real pleasure to have you uh, this evening. Thank you very much for giving up your time to come on the podcast. And we was just chatting off air there and um, I think I was trying to explain to you that really what I want to do is just give you an open platform to tell your story in the hope that it'll inspire some other people who are in their lives as well, uh, not necessarily in the same situation as you, but just try and provide a little bit of positivity and, and understand that there's things that we can achieve and amazing things we can achieve even after some some pretty big setbacks in your life. And we'll, we'll go into that in a short time. So the podcast Never Press News, Mark, came. We're in season three now, 30-odd, 40 episodes into it with some amazing guests, some like yourself who's faced real events of adversity in their life but have been able to spin that positively uh, and build on that and actually build a completely new life for himself. And from everything that I've looked at in the research and from the comms we've had previously, that's what I feel about you, mate. It is an absolute honour to have somebody like yourself on the podcast. So, welcome, mate. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, like I says, um, uh, the, the things that people like yourself do to to give people like me a, a, a platform to sort of tell our stories, and um, yeah, I'm really grateful. And yeah, hopefully, sort of my own experiences can can have a, a positive impact on the people that listen. Well, listen, Mark, let's get straight into it then. There's no time like the present to start. We were just talking about living in the present only a few minutes ago. Um, so you was in the Grenadier Guards for 10 years, I think that's right? Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that, mate. How does it come about? Because as a former soldier myself, this was something that was in me from a very young age and there was no other occupation that was going to settle that. Um, unless I did what I needed to do. So tell me about yours. How did you end up in the Grenadier Guards? Um, to be honest, from, from about 13, 14, um, I, had a, I had a pretty rough time in sort of secondary school, to be honest, um, and not, not the best of sort of home lives. And a friend of mine was going down the careers office and, and I said I'd sort of tag along, really. Um, 
and I, I sat in there and listened and we watched a couple of, of VHS videos <laughs> of, of different regiments and stuff. And um, we come away and it, it was myself that was more drawn in by it. And for me, the army provided an escape, uh, a chance to sort of get away from home, to to make a almost a new life for myself and um, give me an opportunity to sort of be myself and, and sort of come out of my shell a bit more and sort of put everything at school and things like that to bed. Um, and I I only really sort of enjoyed keeping active, like I'd grown up playing football and um, sort of doing cross country and stuff like that. And I only really sort of enjoyed PE at school. Um, so I, it suited me perfect. Um, a career of sort of being active and, and not sort of sat behind a desk and um, yeah, by, by sort of 14, 15, it was, I was hell bent that that's, that's what I was going to do. Um, but I had to, I had to wait until 18 because obviously under the age of 18, you need your, your parents consent for you to sort of go off and um, yeah, mine, mine wouldn't, wouldn't do it. So I just, sort of had to had to ride it out and then when I was 18 I joined anyway so um yeah and it was a, it was the best thing I could have done um like I said it got me away from home and it it allowed me to sort of be around people that I didn't know and I could I could be the person that sort of I wanted to be I suppose I love that because it you know you you're not the only person that I've spoke to you know and, and myself being ex-forces as well that use that as a chance to reset their life, to, yeah. to to disregard everything that's happened previously, and to create almost—and I, I certainly don't want to put words in your mouth—but for me, it was the ability to create an almost new identity, you know. And yeah. that wasn't like a fake identity; it was still me, but I didn't have any of the baggage that I'd created or had come in my teenage lives and my school life, and you know. I was talking the other week and you'll probably remember the day when you stepped on that platform at whatever train station yours was. I know you'll remember it well with a bag and you look around and you see a lot of other young lads in bad suits normally and horrible ties. Yeah. <laughs> and you take a little look. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> I, I can remember the guys. I, I still keep in contact. Some of them listen to the podcast now. We're, we're in our mid-40s, and I can still remember standing at Manchester Piccadilly, getting the train to Birmingham New Street. And uh, there was a guy there that I met who listens to the podcast, Steve Kelly. There was other guys there, Nigel Robottom, who we end up going to Germany with years later. And you know, we never look back. Like that, that was that opportunity to create a new life and start all over again. Is is that what it was like for you, mate? Yeah, definitely. And I think it drove me through training as well. Obviously, ours was sort of twenty six weeks long, and every day, you know, there there would be your your beastings and so on, and like all that would go through my head is that if I if I don't sort of see this through. I have to go back home and and like you say you know you when you turned up at Catterick like Catterick for myself like the slate was wiped clean no one knew me and it was a fresh start um and yeah I obviously I had nerves heading up there but I couldn't wait because that was the sort of the next chapter really I could 
when I came back to, to Milton Keynes, I would be a soldier. Um, there was no sort of two ways about it. I would, there was no way I was sort of coming back and having people sort of say, yeah, you know, I, I told you you wouldn't make it sort of thing. I, I was that that those experiences and, and I suppose the way I was sort of treated in that sense growing up made me more determined. And I'm not sure if I didn't have a, a time like that at school and stuff, if I'd have been as determined to pass training. So in a way, I suppose it in a weird way, it was a blessing. Um, you know, those, those people um, really, really pushed me without realizing it to, to make a career of this. I love the way you phrase that, mate. I really do. Like at the time when you're a teenager and things aren't going as well as maybe you wish they would be and, whatever was going on, you don't realise that that's actually setting you on the path for what you really, really should be doing. And I love how you phrase that, mate. That's amazing that you use their whatever was going on to motivate you and to drive you and to give you the determination that when you walk back there, you'd be a different person. I, I can really relate to that, mate. I really can. Yeah, and I think... The more I got to know lads, obviously through training, um, and and since obviously in battalion and stuff, like we all sort of came from quite similar backgrounds. I think the army provided an escape for a lot of us, so um, everybody was in that same boat. I think the, the majority of lads that I knew were desperate to get away from home, and the army was that perfect that perfect escape route. Yeah, well, it provides a great place, doesn't it? It's a, it's a haven for like-minded young men and women, um, not as many women, obviously, and certainly not in the regiments you were in and the units that you was at, maybe not initially. But, you know, the, it, it really does provide, you know, the, most of the people, and, I, you know, I take generalisations quite lightly, so please don't, I don't want people to think I'm connecting with everybody like this, but most of the people were more active than they were academic. They were, yeah. Um, what would be regarded maybe as a little bit boisterous and a little bit, you know, louder and, you know, a little bit skittish maybe. And that place was just the best playground for people like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way of, yeah. It, it was a playground for all the naughty school children and stuff like that. That's, yeah. that's what it feels like to me, yeah. And, and listen, that that is a real generalisation because I work with some amazing guys who are really, really intelligent. But collectively, I think we all, we were all the naughty school kids and they let us all go to one place. And then they gave us some money yeah. to buy some beers and then, it all goes, <laughs> and then it all goes wrong on a Friday night. But, yeah, real amazing, <laughs> amazing platform. I love the, the talk there about being able to reset your life and, and using the, the military as a, as a place for that, to get away from your existing civilian life. I really can relate to that. So what, I just want to understand why the Grenadier Guards? What was, is that your local regiment or what was the reason for choosing the Grenadier Guards? Because there's plenty on offer when you go through that door. Yeah, to be fair, um, when I when I first went in the first few times, um, 
the recruiting sergeant in there was a green jacket. Uh, so green jackets were down as my my choice at the time. And then one of the days before I went up for selection, um, he wasn't in uh, and there was a grenadier on the desk. <laughs> <laughs> and so green jackets was scribbled out and grenadiers replaced it. Uh, so, yeah, purely on the basis that that particular day, just before I went up to Litchfield, um, yeah, it was a grenadier recruiting son in there instead. So, it really is that simple, um, isn't yeah. it? Mine was, I joined originally as a Royal Engineer, transferred to Signals and then on to Parachute Signals after that. And that's how simple it was. It just depends who was sat on the desk. And that, that day yeah. happened to be a Royal Engineer <laughs> and he was a Mancunian lad. I, I went to Cray's office in Oldham and uh, same as you, mate, lured in by the guy who said, yeah, you can come to my unit. So... Yeah, <laughs> I think I think people listening to this might think that you know, in the style of Harry Potter, where you put the sorting hat on, it's almost as simple as that. It's like, yeah, you're going in there, mate, because you're, uh, yeah. you're the per the last person you spoke to wore that cat badge, so you're going in. So yeah, you end yeah. up at Catrick, mate, and then you're posted out to battalion uh, after that, and you know your list of. Um, operations is quite long there's some there that are um, active operations and you've been a few other places Kenya and uh, Falklands and stuff like that but I want to just try and group the active ones together you know that Iraq and Afghan Afghanistan period we just spoke about off air was a real um, I think you used the phrase purple patch it was a real yeah it was a real time for getting those operations under our belt like there was just uh they were just coming thick and fast from from 99 to 2008 2010 12 you know there was 14 years solid of pure operations mate and uh yeah how was that for you um i mean to be honest i enjoyed it like uh, as as that sort of schoolboy. um I wanted to go away. Uh, and then obviously, um, sort of 2001, like Afghanistan started. And then the year that I joined, um, Iraq, like Telic had started and I just wanted to be in those places. Um, and so, yeah, the opportunity to go away on operational tours to places like that, that was everything I'd imagined soldiering would be. Um, so I, although obviously you, you've got things back home, I I was I was looking forward to going away on them, um, and I I liked I know we sort of said about it before like the simplicity I I preferred being on operational tours to being in camp. Um, it was just a an easy enjoyable way of life. I and I, and I think you see parts of the world that you know tourists will never see, but actually. Um, you go to some beautiful places. I know sort of Baghdad sort of sticks out in my mind as one of the nicest, like, you know, you take away all of the destruction and stuff from, from the war itself. And it was a beautiful place. And yeah, I, I, I remember sort of being in the helis going over uh, sort of Baghdad international airport and stuff and just taking in where we were and just sort of being in that moment and enjoying it. Um, yeah. I, I feel lucky that I joined at the time I did 
because the tours came thick and fast, that was that was exactly what I wanted to do. Um, the, the the ceremonial side of things that also were in battalion back home, they they wore thin pretty quick, whereas the I suppose the tours didn't. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think you know there'll be thousands of servicemen that. I, I think I said it in one of the early podcasts. I had one of the guys who I was out in Iraq with on one of the early podcasts who's you know, probably one of my greatest mentors while I was in the, the army. And he, you know, we, we chatted about, I remember coming back from Iraq 2003 in, in the, the end of summer and we had quite a long period off. And then we came back in December and then we had Christmas off. And we came back like on the 4th of January and uh, straight onto an exercise in Stanter training area. We parachuted in, spent like a week on the ground. Then we went in this random barn for a week. It was just nothing like what we'd just done. Completely different. Yeah. You know, we were practicing this green stuff in woods and, you know, felt yeah. like out, out, outdated and maybe that, you know, sometimes takes a little bit of time, but, the methods were not the same methods you was employing when you was on uh, on operations, and that was really hard to take. The camp life got very, very stagnant after the operations, yeah. and we lost a lot of good guys coming back from each one of those operational tours, and that was a real shame. Um, was that was it the same for you guys? How was it when you got back from the tours? Um, as in sort of settling back into life sort of back in England? Yeah, a bit of both, really. So firstly, just thinking about people coming home and signing off. And then when you start seeing the good lads leave, you start to wonder what's next. Yeah, I think particularly the sort of Herrick tours, the, Af the Afghan tours, um, a lot of lads had sort of come back and said, you know, with that, I'm not doing that again. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, it, it definitely sort of the, the turnaround in blokes was was quite quick, I suppose, between tours, um, and and not everyone obviously wanted to be going away sort of every year to eighteen months. Um, some people went off to sort of our ceremonial company um, that that just sort of carries out public duties and stuff, and were happy to they'd done a couple of tours and were happy to do that. But um, yeah, I think you. Is is accepting like we're back now and we're on, you know, we're we're guarding Buckingham Palace since you know, three weeks after getting back from Iraq or Afghan and um, all the good stuff that you did there would count for nothing if your boots were in shit state. Like yeah. you know, this there was just they were polar opposites. Um, and I think yeah, everyone sort of enjoyed the simplicity of being on tour. Um, whereas obviously yeah, in camp you got everything is just um a bit a bit less enjoyable and obviously a lot of the blokes sort of enjoy a drink and stuff and the sort of trouble that follows that um obviously I was no different so, <laughs> um yeah i suppose it it's it's almost the 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 best way i've sort of described it to other people is operational tours like that are a bit like a drug and then when you come back you're sort of trying to find other things to get that fix um and so yeah people obviously some people sort of resort to going out and getting in trouble and, and going out drinking a lot and because it's like normal sort of 
day-to-day life is quite mundane and you know weapons cleaning and stuff like that and it going on the ranges and yeah like you say it's a, it's a lot different to just how sort of laid back i suppose it is when you're not on patrol and stuff when you're away yeah we just talked about that didn't we off air you know looking in the mirror in my bedroom at the state of my haircut after not having it cut since late november and out there mate we would have uh, <laughs> shaved my hair off, smoked a few fags, lifted some heavy boxes because we didn't have any gym equipment and that simplicity, that simplicity <laughs> of life. I, I mean, the way I described it to you just earlier was it was probably the, 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 the truest time I've lived, if that's even a phrase, but I lived in the present is what I'm trying to say. Nothing at home really yeah. mattered. I was fortunate or unfortunate depends how you look at it not to be in a relationship back home um and i had no bills i didn't have a mobile phone because we weren't allowed one i had a car but that was parked on camp with all my bags in it for when we got back on r and r that was it and nothing nothing to really think about and i didn't really have much in the future to think about because what we were saying is earlier we we weren't always sure if we would come home or not so there's no point in looking too far forward to so just manage to live in the middle somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's a much, it's a much easier way of life. I think my only sort of turning point was towards the end of Herrick 11. Um, I started to talk with my wife on the phone more and more about we'd planned to have, you know, start a family, but we wanted to get Herrick out the way first. So yeah, I must admit towards the end of Afghan, you then start thinking, oh, I sort of just want to make it back now. Yeah. Um, whereas sort of in the in the middle of the tour, it was, that's like a pipe dream for now. Um, whereas towards the end, it started to become more and more real. And yeah, you found you got a bit more nervous going out, like the handover patrols and stuff towards the end. They were the most nerve wracking. So like, I'm so close to going home and being able to start a family. Um, and yeah, that's that was the first time where you start looking forward again. Yeah, it's a really, really clever way of putting that, Mark. About there's a, there's a certain point in the tour, isn't there, where the the end of the tour, when you talk about something in a six month block, is so far away. It's like boiling the ocean; you just can't get there. It just doesn't even it's not even worth thinking about. It's half a year, and if that starts yeah. to creep through you get closer to that end and you don't want to put a foot wrong and you don't want things to go wrong. You just want to get, just want to get home now. Like, yeah. yeah. You're already yeah. in the pub. I've already sunk that first pint and you've already yeah. <laughs> give your wife that first cuddle. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, I get it, man. Yeah. I get it. How's that trans? You mentioned before about that transition coming back for you. How, you know, a lot of people have spoke on the podcast about, coming back into normal life, let's call it, if, if that's what it is. How was that transition for you from being on operations and then being back, you know, amongst your wife and family? Um, I suppose a lot of what I've done, even up to now, you know, the, the, the bodybuilding, the strongman, all that stuff, it's all been chasing that that high um i think 
I mean, the only thing I think that came close to it, I went out to Russia for the World Cup um, and I was I was in the Luzhniki when Trippier scored his free kick in, in the semi-final and that elation, that, <laughs> that adrenaline rush at that moment is probably the closest to the sort of the adrenaline of, of being in a contact and stuff. And so I think, I think Afghans played a big role in my life since because I loved, I loved the, that was just sort of soldiering, you know, plain and simple, just soldiering. Um, and I've, I've, I've found it hard not to compare every experience since to then. So it's, it's left an impression on my life in that sense that I'm still like a drug addict in that sense. I'm chasing that first high. And a lot of what I've done since has been trying to trying to sort of recreate that and, and chase that that buzz, that adrenaline. Um so that's that's probably the lasting effect that, that Afghan had on me. Um and obviously sort of after I was injured, the battalion went back out again and had a rough tour and um yeah, that's that was that was horrible because obviously I I should have been, um, you know, a section commander on that tour and stuff. And um, yeah, I think anybody that's been, I suppose, a little bit of you stays there. Um, a little bit of you never quite comes back from Afghan. Um, and I think for me, it was it was that that elation of being in that moment and just this is exactly what I sort of not dreamt of, but this is what I imagined doing as a teenage boy and, and I'm doing it. Um, and I've, yeah, I think it's sort of dictated my life and my choices since. Well, you just touched there, mate, on, on your, on your injury. So we, we, 2021, it's 10 years ago that you was almost fatally injured at, at, on a, on an exercise, a live firing exercise that was in the build up, ready to go back out to Afghanistan and you end up yes. um, getting shot on a live firing exercise a number of times in the leg, which ended up losing the leg and also with some shoulder damage in there as well, mate. I'm, I'm not doing that any justice. Please tell us, <laughs> tell us what happened, mate. Yeah. Um, so I'd, after Afghanistan, um, the, the tour had, had gone particularly well for me and I I was um offered uh juniors so to go away to, to Brecon for four months to to do um SCBC the section commanders battle course. Um and a part of that obviously you become skill at arms qualified and, and range qualified to oversee range safety. Um so straight after finishing in Brecon I flew out with the the rest of the battalion to Canada um did the six week exercise really enjoyed it I, I had the opportunity a couple of times to step up to platoon sergeant and enjoyed that so that got me thinking about you know that's the role I want to get to now and um it was just a good exercise for me I was managing to implement a lot more of my own ideas a lot more things I'd learned on juniors that I wanted to pass on and just had a good, a really good exercise. And then um, those of us that were sort of Lance Lance and above were obviously all range qualified. So we were expected to stay on 
to join the permanent safety staff there. Um, and an opportunity came up to work with three Yorks who were armoured at the time. And that's not a role I've done before, but the perk to it was that we would be manoeuvring everywhere on vehicles as opposed to on foot. So, <laughs> small, um, small perk, I, I yeah. jumped at it. Yeah, I jumped at it because I thought, well, I've just done six weeks, like going across the prairie, like, you know, I'll happily do another six weeks on the back of a vehicle. Um, and yeah, so we, we sort of built up as you do, um, going down as individuals, pairs, fire teams, sections. Um, and I, I had raised my sort of concerns because being a temporary safety staff member, there was bits of kit that in my eyes were essential um, that I wasn't issued with, uh, one of them being a, a radio. Um, so obviously the bigger the scale of the ranges, the more disorientating they become because you you lose that situational awareness where you haven't got any comms with any, any, anyone else on the range. Um, and then, yeah, we built up to a platoon attack. Uh, and I'd actually text my wife that morning uh, obviously with the time difference and I just said I I got that same horrible feeling just about today um, and I always seem to have this same same gut feeling when something really shit happened <laughs> um, and then yeah we got out to the ranges did the first platoon attack so the first position they debussed out of the warriors um, cleared a bunker position so we debussed and followed them went down to a trench system likewise the, the first platoon attack the section I was following stayed as fire support. So that was as far as I went, um, stopped for lunch. And I sort of said I, I didn't feel particularly comfortable, um, but I was working with people from other regiments and it was, uh, I was a, I was a Lance on. So there was an element of, you know, sort of crack on. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we went down after lunch Um but the section that I was following on the trench system advanced on as as the uh, the assaulting section to go and clear the first compound, and the assaulting pairs have stacked up outside, and I'm behind the last last man. Um, and then yeah, as the as the first pair have gone in to clear the first room, I'm one side of the wall, they're the other, um, and they came through the back of me. The rounds came through the back of me, so. There was a there was an element of confusion that followed because we were we were giving out sort of role play casualties to sort of test their casualty evacuation and everything like that. So man down gets called, um, you know, which had obviously been called a couple of times in the lead up to that. Uh, and then yeah, the other safety staff member that had gone in with the first pair came out and saw that. I was sort of laying on the floor with an arterial bleed um, and then stop was called. Um, and the safety staff were were, were brilliant. Um, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be here. The, the Yorks lads, no, you know, not taking anything away from them, but they hadn't been on Herrick before. And so where our SOPs, where our sort of our standards uh, in the Grenadiers in the exercise beforehand, we all carried morphine, first field dressings, tourniquets. Um, the Yorks lads, unfortunately, didn't have any of that. So it, I was, it was just down to what the safety staff lads had. Um, so they, 
Yeah, they, they applied a tourniquet above and below the exit wound. Um, they'd gone to put pressure on it. One of the lads gone to put pressure on it with his hand and his, the palm of his hand went right inside my leg uh, where the exit wound was was that big. Um, and yeah, on, on putting one of the tourniquets on, they'd caught my ball sack in, so I was screaming. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, that had to quickly be reapplied. Um, and then they, yeah, they sort of, they could see the artery and one of the lads managed to clamp it off. And, and that, that moment there is, is ultimately what kept me alive. Um, and then they, they kept my leg elevated, kept talking to me. Um, I kept complaining that my shoulder was sort of really burning and eventually they cut my shirt open and obviously saw I had a clean entry and exit in my shoulder and sort of packed that with Hemcon and, um, and then we waited for the heli and I think in total I waited about 90 minutes to be airlifted um, and all this time I had no morphine uh, so yeah I didn't have any any pain relief of any sort um, my lung had collapsed so they were they were pumping that and um, I was lying there sort of starkers and and then I I'd felt this just really really peaceful relaxed warmth um and i can only i can only sort of say that that there was possibly the moment where if i'd have just embraced it i'd have passed away um and so i was i was sort of desperately trying to fight it because it it was just almost i was i was sort of drifting off to sleep and i was becoming really sort of cozy and the pain had stopped um and so the lad one of the lads just sort of knocked me about a bit and brought me back round and um sort of kept me talking and and he'd said that all my sort of my jaw had gone limp and my sort of extremities had gone blue and stuff and so yeah I was I was in a bad way and um yeah like I said after after 90 minutes obviously I've had the tourniquets on all this time I've I've then been airlifted to Medicine Hat Hospital um but my injuries were sort of too severe for that hospital. So I was then forwarded onto Calgary. Uh, so by the time I've got on the operating theatre, um, I've had the tourniquets on for about six hours and uh, and I'd actually flatlined on the heli. So it took about five minutes to bring me back. Um, so yeah, I was, I was gone. I think I, I sort of, I felt, um, confident on the heli that I was going to sort of live now um and that was probably my biggest mistake because I relaxed on the heli and that was when I that was when I went um and then yeah my my wife and my my dad were were flown out and as we later found out it was essentially to turn off my life support um but thankfully uh that that didn't have to be the case and um Two days later, I, I came off life support and they they had to amputate my leg uh, above the knee. Um, and then, yeah, a couple of weeks later, I was flown back to the UK to the Queen Elizabeth in Birmingham onto the, the military warden. Uh, spent another sort of nine weeks um, there. And that was my turning point, I suppose, as to uh, I was just surrounded by lads like far worse off than myself that had come back from Afghan sort of severely injured and they were all sort of really positive and it was just a good environment to be around at that point because it put my own sort of injuries into perspective um 
and seeing seeing how sort of positive and upbeat they were it was it was infectious so that's where my sort of my drive and my mentality to sort of just crack on sort of kicked in i suppose um struggling for words mate struggling for words to you know that that's happened on an exercise out in canada but the story itself you could place that in any operation whether in exercise or not you know that catastrophe of errors you stood six foot to the left six foot to the right it's a totally different scenario you've got people who've got the skills some that haven't i mean it it's pretty much every military operation that you can go on and without them people and this is why when we go back to the beginning of the story, you know, the beginning of our conversation where I said this was a playground for, for lads who were, you know, less, not as academic, but overactive. This is where they come into their own, those people. They absolutely yeah. come into their own because they're fearless, they're switched on, you know, when we talk about people being intelligent, these guys are switched on. Their situational awareness is so fucking strong at that moment in time that they have the ability to influence whether people make it or not. But- yeah. Oh, yeah. Without those lads, I I wouldn't be here talking to you now. Um, yeah, they're sort of quick thinking. Um, like I said, to, to clamp the artery off, had they not done that, I'd have just bled out. Uh, the tourniquets weren't stopping it. And yeah, that, that just comes down to a couple of lads sort of instinct um, that, yeah, as to why I'm here. Thank God for people like that, mate. Thank God that the army gives those people a, a platform to excel when they're needed. There's, there's loads of yeah. those guys around, you know, they've made films about it. There's TV programs about it, that they exist in every battalion. They exist in every single regiment. They exist in every section. When the shit hits the fan, they're the guys you need at the side here. Uh, what a fucking yeah. story, mate. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. Um, I mean, I must, I must admit, like, obviously, eventually when I, when I sort of got to the hospital and I, I got to Headley Court and so on, and, and you're surrounded by sort of lads that had stepped on IEDs and stuff. And, um, yeah, there was an element of feeling sort of a lesser man, I suppose, because of the way that I was injured, um, that I, I, I had more than one day, um, particularly at Headley Court, of just um, no disrespect to the lads who've been injured in Afghan, but wishing that it had happened there, just because I was always that lad that got shot in Canada. Um, and that wasn't how I wanted to be defined, I suppose. Um, you know, I'd done I'd done the other operational tours. I'd been fortunate that I'd come back unscathed from them. Um, but, yeah without people sort of intending, you know, you, you, you felt like you were sort of looked at as 
as less of a soldier because of the way in which I was injured. Um, so that probably drove me even more um, to sort of try and make a success of myself to um, to not, for my sort of legacy, not to be the bloke that got shot in Canada, but to make something of myself after that. Yeah. Listen, mate, anyone who goes through that ordeal, whether it's in Canada or Afghanistan, is is a tough ordeal. But I think that that's that's a I don't know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't a military attitude, you know, that you then actually end up grading the levels of injury and the environment and the you know, the place they were caused that you almost then have to compare it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean at, at that time you had double and triple amputees at, at Headley Court. Like, you know, that was the majority of injuries. So, yeah, straight away, like you said, you know, you you graded. I, I was bluffing it. I had a flesh wound. In the <laughs> you know, that was that, that that was the way that it was it was seen. The the, the single leg amputees were bluffing their ticket. I mean, yeah. if that's not if that's not um, dark military humour right there, I don't really know what is. You you're, you're missing yeah. only one limb, mate. <laughs> What have you? What have you got yeah. to complain about? You got this easy, pal. <laughs> That's exactly love what it that. Was, yeah. Love that. Everyone's got their own regimental T-shirt on, giving each other shit of who was better and who was worse and who's got better injuries. I mean, yeah. wow! Take me back. Take me back to them times where where <laughs> life was that simple that it was just about elitism and friendly banter. Uh, yeah. So listen, mate. Thank you for sharing that. The, the honesty there, mate, you you rocked me a bit there. I, I'd read about it. I wasn't quite expecting it like that. And that certainly is opening up. I just want to say thanks, mate, for, for sharing that. And people that are listening to this, I, I'm sure they'll be in the same bit of shock I'm in right now listening to that, that story. <laughs> you know, you, you know it happens and you see it happen and it goes on. But that isn't real unfortunate set of circumstances and that gut instinct and that gut feeling you had while it was going on it yeah something in that mate something in there so you talked about let's get it back to where you are now mate because like although we've you know that that travesty has happened and you've had to come back from that you've come back strong mate that's not a pun no pun intended but you've come back You've come back strong. Um, since then, you've been on stage in bodybuilding competitions. You've won the uh, England's Strongest Man, British Strongest Man, represented in the World's Strongest Man. And more later than that, you've played professional football. And I've watched you on crutches kicking a ball. And you're mustard, mate. You're a decent player. Like, <laughs> you've got some techers there, mate. What I was watching. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So t- tell me about that because that tells, that sounds like from what we said earlier in the podcast that you're chasing that adrenaline still. And it's just morphed yeah. itself into varying different physical competitions what's what's beneath that mate why why all the physical competitions why why bodybuilding why world strongest man why get into professional football um as somebody that 
is classed as disabled as, a, as an amputee. Why? Why now? Um, I think, obviously, I've got two sons and I I always sort of, you know, I was, I was a proud grenadier and, you know, and I was sort of my wife's big, brave soldier. You know, that was what she always sort of called me and stuff. And I didn't want to be a sort of shadow of that. Um, I felt I had a responsibility to sort of lead by example still um, and and be a good role model for the children and not, you know, there's there's our dad who sort of sits on the sofa now, but, you know, he, he used to he used to do this, that and the other. And I wanted to sort of build a legacy. And I think early on in hospital, it's, you, you know, you've got all these medical professionals telling you, you're not going to be able to do this, you're not going to be able to do that. And it just took me back to before starting at Catterick, my my old man said, you'll never make it. You'll be back in a week. You, you won't be good enough. And in a way, it fired up that same that same determination in me when you've got surgeons and stuff going, you're not going to be able to do this, you're not going to be able to do that. And it, it, it kicked in again, that stubbornness that I'll show you. Um, and so I'd gone through the sort of two years at Headley and, and some lads had got their head screwed on. I want to do this as a career when I get out and they do their resettlement. And I was lost, to be honest, because all I'd wanted to do was be a soldier and I I still didn't have a replacement. Um, but I enjoyed being in the gym and my mentality hadn't changed as in still wanting to be very active. Um and I found it quite therapeutic sort of spending every day at the gym at Headley. My my timetable was made to accommodate that, to allow me time to go and train. And so when I was out, I'd only been out a couple of months and I said to my wife, I was like, I need a purpose. Um, I'm, I'm lost. Like I'd gone into personal training, but it just, it just, I was empty. Um, and I said, I need something that's going to challenge me and, and get me out of bed in the morning. And, um, I'd found myself at Headley in the evenings just looking for people that had stepped up on stage as amputees in bodybuilding and if it was possible. And the thing that drew me to bodybuilding is I'd spent a lot of time being looked at as you'd almost become the prosthetic leg. You know, that's that's what you were seen as. Um, whereas to step up on a bodybuilding stage, I would be judged not for the leg that's gone, but for everything that I've got left. So for everything I've got left, the, the two arms, the one leg, you know, my body, like I can still work that hard. Um, and if I step up on stage, it I'm going to be critiqued for what I've, you know, for my efforts. Um, and so I also mm -hmm. sort of saw it as a, a confidence booster. Um, you know, this is this is how far I've come since I was sort of, nine stone in hospital um and bodybuilding seemed like the perfect the perfect sort of bit of closure from that chapter um and as as it turned out um it, it went it went quite well for me and i i was i loved i loved the adrenaline of, of being up on stage and the reaction you got from the crowd and um i enjoyed that moment but i found myself as soon as I come off stage, I wanted to do it again. So I was always, I was keeping myself busy by always looking forward to the next one, the next one, the next one. And, um, 
just wanting to better myself and learn from people and similar to the army you have you have role models certain section commanders and platoon science and stuff that you look up to and you you pick all of their qualities and you try and implement them yourself and I was doing the same in bodybuilding I was picking the brains of people that had stepped on the Mr Universe stage and been to British finals and stuff like that and I just wanted to learn from I wanted to be a sponge and try and do my bit to sort of show what you could do as opposed to what you couldn't it was sort of flipping what the surgeons had said on their head um and then yeah as, as the bodybuilding went on um i i had the the off season it had finished in the sort of september october time so I'd, i didn't have to sort of diet i could relax for a few months sort of you know spend a bit more time with the family and stuff and I started to enjoy my training more because I, where my diet had sort of slackened off, I had a bit more energy. Um, and that coincided with being invited to try like an open day for disabled strongman. And um, I was a bit skeptical because it meant competing in a wheelchair and everything about Headley Court was get on a prosthetic, you know, again, you're bluffing it. You don't need to be in a wheelchair. So I wasn't I wasn't particularly keen, but I, I thought I'll go down because I I'd I'd grown up watching World's Strongest Man on the television at Christmas and I I loved it and the thought of getting the opportunity to do that was amazing. Um so I, I went down to Kent, you know, with a bit of an open mind and I it gave me a chance to try and pull a truck to lift some Atlas stones, press some logs and, you know, be around different people. Um one thing I'd started to sort of notice obviously at Headley you're around other servicemen you're around other amputees whereas through the bodybuilding and then into strongman it had opened my eyes that I was now around lads who had spina bifida cerebral palsy paralysis um lads who had lost their sight and um yeah really even other amputees but they'd had very different experiences to my own rehabilitation so it it really sort of opened my eyes um and I liked being around that and, and just being in awe and admiration of what they were doing. Um, and it had, it had turned out that I seemed to have a, a niche for strong man. Um, I'd never until that day, I'd never ever touched an Atlas stone. Um, and my very first training session, um, I'd outlifted the, the, the reigning world's strongest disabled man was there to sort of help teach us and stuff. And, I'd outlifted him on the stones. Um, Who was so that? Who was, was that, by the way, that you outlifted? Lee, uh, Lee Small. He's uh, a Welsh lad. Yeah. Um, and he'd, yeah, I mean, he was he was brilliant. He'd come along to obviously give up his time to sort of teach us techniques and help us. And um, at that point, the heaviest stone that had been done was about 90 kilos. And I'd lifted a 100 kilo stone literally within sort of 10 minutes of picking up my very first one um so i i entered britain's britain's was six weeks after that and i there was 23 of us um competing so i thought top 10 i'll be ecstatic um you know this is a learning curve i, I i'll watch people i'll watch their techniques i'll study them I'll, I'll pick their brains and you know what their what their diet's like their rest what their training's like what kit they've got you know just really use it as a learning curve and hopefully sort of enjoy the day. Um, and as it turned out, I 
I ended up winning Britain's Strongest Disabled Man that day in my very first competition. At what, um, at what point? And it sort of at what point during there. that day, from from walking in there thinking I'll have a top ten finish, at what point did the balance swing so I could actually win this? Uh, I thought I'd got lucky. The very first event was a truck pull. Um, and because it was the first event, we went in alphabetical order. So I was one of the last to go. So I'd had the chance to watch some people. Um, and then literally just as it got to S, the heavens opened. It started pouring down. So obviously the rope got a little bit heavier, a little bit slippier. Um, and my name was called up. And then I, I sort of sat down, was being harnessed sort of up and sort of about to take the sort of strain on the rope. And um, my two boys had, had made like a banner sort of cheering me on. And and I just almost had like an out-of-body experience. And this truck felt weightless. Um, and I won it. And I won, the, I won the truck pool. So the very first event, I'm then sat top of the leaderboard. Um, and I just thought at that point... I've just had a lucky, you know, beginner's <laughs> luck. Um, and then by, I think, the fourth event, it was the Hercules hold. And I'd broke the world record for for the hold. Um, and then that's when I started to think, like, I can win this. Um, and then I went and won the car deadlift. And and then I, all I had to do for the stones was get all five up. Um, yeah, so after the car deadlift, it was like, I've just got to see this next event out. Um, but yeah, I mean, even it was just a blur. Like I absolutely loved it. I loved the the biggest difference between strongman and bodybuilding was the bodybuilding. You were, you were judged. Um, you had four judges picking who they thought was the best, you know, so it was opinions. Whereas the thing that I, I absolutely loved about that day was I'd won it on merit. Um, there was nobody's opinion. The strongest person on the day wins. And it just so happened that that day I'd had a really good day. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I sort of, I, again, I, I picked people's brains and I, I lived that lifestyle. I completely binned off the, the bodybuilding diet in and stuff and started to eat like a strong man. I'd invested in all my own kit. Um, I I went and trained with a couple of sort of professionals and stuff and just again I just wanted to be like a sponge I wanted to absorb every every bit of information they could give me um and yeah all of my sort of physio and everything like that just became about strongman and I I dedicated myself to it and I got I got very lucky that I I then sort of retained Britons again the following year um I went out to the Arnold's World Championships in uh, Ohio, which is um, an invitation-only competition um, with the top 10 in the world invited. Uh, and I won that both <laughs> years that I went. Um, and then, yeah, one of my last competitions was winning England's at Brands Hatch uh, about a week or so after I'd set a world record there for pulling two trucks on the racetrack. Um so I just, yeah, I, I just literally sort of the, the same as, as being a, a squaddy, the same as being a bodybuilder, I, I dedicated myself to it. Um, but yeah, I suppose the, to then go from strongman to football, um, 
actually came through sort of having a massive dip. Um, I, after I'd won my first Britons, one of the, one of the lads who had kept me alive that day, the one I'd said had managed to clamp my artery off. Uh, we, we hadn't served together before that. He was from the Royal Welsh, um, but we became, you know, really, really good friends afterwards. And obviously I owed the man my life. <laughs> so, you know, we, we seemed to sort of have a, I'm a really sure he, bond I'm and, sure he settled um, for a few pints. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, as soon as we managed to get in touch, he drove from Lenecley to Milton Keynes about 10 minutes afterwards <laughs> on the phone. Um, and we sat up all night talking and yeah, we just became really, really good friends. And two weeks after I, I won that first Britons, um, he ended up sort of taking his own life. And um, I'd been the first lad that he'd treated that had actually survived. Um, and I think it sort of brought all of the lads that he'd lost back to the surface. And um, so that, although I sort of dedicated myself to strongman, I was, I, I was sort of driven by that. I, I chose to sort of keep busy rather than sort of address it. Um, so a, a lot of the, the events, the truck pulling and the log pressing and all that sort of stuff more became about channeling that upset. Um, and that sort of coincided with, I'd, I'd obviously put on a lot of weight by that point to, to be able to sort of compete at that level. Um, so I was really struggling to walk. I was having to spend more and more time in a wheelchair and, um, I'd had an exploratory operation on my leg that had backfired massively. And so I was just, I was in agony. Um, you know, I, I hadn't really sort of processed what had happened to Spence and, um, yeah, shortly after I'd won England's, I just sort of piled in really, um, and yeah, sort of a, a said to my wife, I, I sort of needed, I needed help. Um, I'd, I'd considered almost on a daily basis, um, you know, com committing suicide and, um, not that I didn't want to be here, but I was so tired of being in pain. Um, it was so debilitating and one bad day spiraled into two and then into a week and then a month. And I didn't want to put my prosthetic on, but I was too proud not to wear it. Um, so I was putting myself for agony just because I couldn't be seen in a wheelchair. I couldn't be seen on crutches and, you know, obviously my wife couldn't understand that, but I was too proud. Um, and then, yeah, it caught up with me. Um, and so when I sort of started having my counseling and stuff like that and, and sitting down with my wife and, and I said, like, I'd, I'd played football from the age of seven all the way through to joining the army and, and I was. I was lucky I got to play for the regiment as well. And um, so football had been a massive part of my life. And, and I even remember now the last time I played in battalion <laughs> with two legs. Um, it's, it's as clear as it was yesterday. How was your performance? Um, How was your performance that day on a scale of one to ten? Do you know, I, I actually, I had a sort of worldie. I, I'd cleared a couple off the line. I'd, I'd I was a centre half, so I, I got more enjoyment out of tackling and clearing balls off the line than I did scoring because well, I, I didn't score very many, so I had to yeah. enjoy something on there. Um, but I, I sort of said I, I really miss football. I miss being part of a team. I miss being around people, and and I miss the army and stuff. And 
I think the thing with bodybuilding and strongman, they're individual solo sports. So you spend a hell of a lot of time in your own company with your own thoughts, which obviously at that time wasn't wasn't healthy for me. Um, so I I started to lose the weight. Um, this counselling sessions were helping. I was I was sort of buying into the the whole process more and opening up more, and um, and that coincided with getting into football. Um, I stood out like a sore thumb when I, I I joined Peterborough United to start, and um, obviously I stood out like a sore thumb on the team photos and on the pitch. I was still I was still about twenty stone, um, so yeah, a twenty stone player at centre half up against lads who were seventeen, eighteen years old and about nine, ten stone. Um, getting skin, right? But getting skin, what I all day, yeah. But I I enjoyed the physical aspect. Um, but I thought what I what I sort of lacked in sort of pace on crutches, um, hopefully I could sort of bring a bit of leadership and, and help with those young. The younger lads were very quiet and I thought hopefully I can instill some confidence in them to get them talking and vocal and just, you know, build them up. Um, but although they were sort of half my age, um, like with the bodybuilding and strongman, I learned a lot from them, you know, how short they had their crutches, you know, they taped the cuffs up so the crutches didn't fall off and, um, you know, how often they trained and, um, yeah, and it, I absolutely loved it. I loved being back on a, a football pitch. I, I thought I would never step on a football pitch again, which is what ate away at me in hospital, almost more so than being an amputee. Um, so, Every time I step on a pitch now, it's like it's the last time I'll ever get to play. So I, I throw every bit of me into every sort of tackle, every header, every, you know, every pass. Like I just sort of live in that moment, much like we did in sort of Afghan. You 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 savor every second of it, and um, yeah, and it, it that went just as well as the bodybuilding and strongman. And I um, we we won the league in my first season. Um, we beat. Uh, Manchester City in the playoff final um, and I, I cleared two off the line that day <laughs> funnily enough um, and I was then voted player of the year um, which to have gone from someone that seriously considered suicide and, and feeling really sort of low and alone to being welcomed and embraced and, and respected by your sort of teammates was that really really picked me up Um and then yeah, I uh, spent a couple of scenes with them, and now I've I've joined West Bromwich Albion for the for the challenge, and I'm just waiting for this. Well, season to start listen, now. that's the reason we managed to get on tonight because when we originally messaged about this date, you said, "Yeah, no problem," unless the football season started, and that was today. And unfortunately, due to the current situation, it's it's not it's not panned out quite as good as that, but. Got to be honest, mate. What is West Bromwich Albion's loss this evening is has been my game, mate. I've absolutely loved every minute of it, and I don't mean that in a insensitive way. That listening to the things that you've gone through has been enjoyable. There's been times throughout your story, mate, where that's like shocked me to the core. But what I've noticed throughout the entire time we've been together is that a few things, and I don't know, these are just my, what I'm taking away is you love being around the lads. 
can't escape that feeling of being around yeah. the lads. And we talked about that off air, that whatever that is, whether it's lads or girls, it doesn't really matter. But that team environment feels like you need that. No matter what you do, you're unbelievably committed. There's a remarkable story there where you've reset your life and sacked off that teenage years where it weren't quite going the way you wanted, so you created your own life. But more importantly, you've not, from what I see in all of this, is you've not allowed that really tragic day in Canada to, to deter the things that you have the ability to do. And that's, that's fucking special, mate. That really is special. You are an absolute inspiration, mate. If I just hope people, when they listen to this, they, they hear what I've heard today because connecting one-on-one with you has been, has been amazing, mate. Thank you very much for being so open. Oh, no, thank you. That's, that's very kind of you. I, like I said, I, I've just always appreciated that people want to listen to it. Um, I've always found it quite humbling that that people want to give up their time to to listen to obviously the things that I've done. And um I think for me it's just, you know, when I when I sort of laid in hospital, I, I suppose I had a lot of regrets. Um things I still wanted to achieve and stuff. And um my my sort of outlook on it now is that you know, if if I end up in that same situation on death's door tomorrow, like have I sort of made the most of it? And I I owe it to those lads that sort of fought so hard to keep me alive to make the most of this sort of second opportunity that I've got. Um, and even more so, I owe it to Spence, you know, to his sort of family and his legacy to, um, you know, to do him proud and... Yeah, that's what I sort of try and do when it's whether it's pulling a truck, whether it's stepping on stage, whether it's walking out onto a football pitch. It's um, it's just about sort of proving that I was worth saving, um, and hopefully, I can sort of still go on and achieve more things. Well, in my opinion, mate, you're making your wife and your boys extremely proud, and I've got no doubt, having come in from a forces background, that. Spence is looking down, mate, and he's extremely proud of everything that you're achieving as well. So I think you can rest safe in the knowledge that the things you're doing, mate, are making those people extremely proud. I, I really do want to say thank you, mate, for, for joining me this evening. And uh, I, I can't wait to listen back to this because uh, I think I'm having an out-of-body experience listening to it. I need I need to, there's so much <laughs> things coming in. I need to process it all. I'm, I'm going to have to listen back to this a few times, mate. Um, there's some, you made a statement yeah. earlier and I've wrote that down and a little bit of you never came home from Afghanistan. And that probably yeah. one of the most profound things that anyone said on here from a forces background. I really do think that is so true that whoever goes out there, in whatever it is they're doing, a little bit of them never comes home and they leave that there. But I think what you've done since you came home from those places and since the ordeal in Canada, mate, has been absolutely remarkable. It's It really is amazing. What's next? If, as if that's not enough, what's next, Mark? What's next for you? Premier League? <laughs> Win the Premier League with West um, Brom? So- the, yeah, I mean, the aim is definitely to try and 
I've I've joined West Brom having played against them the last two seasons. You know, they've got a really sort of young, enthusiastic manager that that plays good football. The team is really sort of hard working for each other. And playing against them, I just sort of thought, I want a bit of that. Um, you can see the respect there at half time when the manager's talking, they're all listening and sort of hanging off his word and having obviously trained with them now since last summer. Um, yeah, I it was definitely a good decision. I, I love it then. He's he's given me the confidence. I was I was very much uh, um, the last man at, at Peterborough. You know, I I would go in for that last ditch tackle and get the ball upfield and let those lads do the work. Whereas he's encouraged me to sort of carry the ball out myself and be a lot more confident on the ball. And this, yeah, I I just want to keep improving and obviously play for as long as I can. But yeah, this year this year's been. 10 years in July since I lost my leg. So um, I've just entered the 10 kilometre race for the Milton Keynes Marathon in May. So I'm going to do that on crutches without my prosthetic. Um, and the aim on the day itself uh, is to climb Snowdon. Um, and yeah, and as, as long as I'm sort of fit and healthy, um, if a challenge comes up, then I'll embrace it and sort of, you know, give it everything um and like i said hopefully sort of my boys my wife my regiment uh spence you know try and sort of do all of those people proud and um yeah i think if if uh if some of some of my own sort of resilience over the last few years can rub off on my children and it helps them later on in life then um then i'll be happy hey, what a fitting way to end that podcast there's still more to come. Mark, I wish you all the best, mate, for your footballing career, whatever that looks like. Um, after Sunday's result, United versus West Brom, I'm not a massive West Brom fan, if I'm honest, anymore. But I'll, uh, <laughs> I, I will keep my eye out for the West Brom score now that you're playing there. Um, and I wish you all the best, mate, for the Milton Keynes 10K, the Snowden climb and, and everything else. I, Hope your family and your missus and boys keep safe, mate, and yourself while this ordeal's going on. And, uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you, mate, for, for being part of this podcast, uh, part of season three. It's been an absolute honour. Yeah, thank you, mate. It's, it's Like I said, it's a privilege whenever anybody takes an interest. And, yeah, I've really enjoyed speaking to yourself. And it's it's nice to sort of... Although, like, obviously, we, you know, we haven't sort of served together. There's that, you know, within a couple of minutes of talking to you.